1: Good words, family. This is going to be a great episode, and we're going to have a fantastic conversation and a good time like we always do. But we will be talking about the sensitive subject of sexual violence. Listener discretion advised. I'm serious. This is a great honor. I have to ask you in a minute, why would you, at the level of success that you have had, even want to take time to even do this podcast with me? But save that answer. Save that answer.
0: Cut
1: it out. Child (laughs) Child, please. Child please. Child please. Brothers and sisters, sisters. (laughs) my name is Kirk Franklin, and I come to give you good words. Let's go. Good Words family with us today, man. I mean, there are just moments in history that you will always remember these oracles, these ambassadors for truth, and they will go down in history as disruptors, changemakers, those that curated the right type of controversy. She's an activist, an author, an organizer, and she's reshaped the way many people view This word that I say with great humility, sexual assault. In 2017, the hashtag MeToo exploded on social media. Over 12 million posts, 24 hours. 12 million posts in 24 hours, people. Survivors of sexual assault found solidarity and strength in two words, MeToo. And today's guest is the founder of the Me Too movement. She first used the term back in 2006 as a way to empower survivors to tell their stories. What was once a grassroots movement has helped spawn a cultural reckoning around rape, sexual assault, harassment, and abuse within the entertainment industry and society at large. In addition to her activism, man, she's a mother, she's a sister. She's a shula. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I wonder if she got a sneaker game, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to see so if she got, she, got oh, got game, game. she got a sneaker <laughs> game. She got a sneaker game, y'all. She got a sneaker game. is going down. Please help me welcome our sister, a queen, Tarana Burke.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's an awesome, awesome introduction.
1: <laughs> I am from the South and you and I are just a few years apart. You are a couple of years, few years younger than me. You know, people that don't live in New York have always been fascinated with New York <laughs> and you were raised in the Bronx. Yes. Please, can you tell a Southern boy real quick, just give me a snapshot of how it was for you as a young girl growing up, During the birth of hip-hop. Yes. The young Toronto.
0: Well, first, let me just say, I could sit and give an equally long and passionate um, welcome to you. I'm so excited to be here and thank you for asking me to be here. I I really, really am a fan and we we can get into that later. But um,
1: Humbled, humbled. But,
0: you know, growing up in the Bronx, definitely during the dawn and golden age of hip-hop was amazing. And, And I think now that I'm Approaching 50. Hip-hop will be 50 and I'll be 50 next year. Both of us are 1973. Wow. And I love that I have that connection. I understand that privilege in in a very different way than I did. I think we took it for granted coming up. You know, you took it for granted that you like, oh, Slick Rick lives around the corner. Oh, you know, Boogie Down Productions. Wait a
1: minute. Wait, 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 wait. Yes. I mean, wait. you know,
0: these people live. They- you just don't say <laughs> like
1: this. Wait a minute, Miss T. Wait a minute, Miss T. Miss T, there's just some things you got to let have a little air. Gotta air. You got to let out, some right? air. Can- yeah. Who who lived around the corner from your crib? So when um, when the show
0: came out, Slick Rick lived not far from where we were. But beyond that, D-Nice is from Highbridge, which wow. is the community I came from. KRS-One, Boogie Down Productions is literally was around the corner. You know, like, these are the people that you saw. And I'm I'm from the Bronx, but the Bronx and Harlem kind of flow together, <laughs> if you will. So it was nothing to see, you know, hip-hop acts riding around in their cars. They got their little bit of money and they got a BMW and they be driving through the street, flossing, you know. Yeah. So we saw Heavy D and, we, you know, we would see, I'll be sure, oh. people like that just driving around, oh. you know, and oh. we got to see these, you right there. I remember going to see like Wu-Tang and and the Fugees when they was just starting and like the tunnel, this club in the in Manhattan, yes. you know, you paid yes. like $20 or something like that. And you're seeing these acts that would be legendary. So I... I really appreciate that. And it it also wasn't a time period where it felt before social media, where I think social media helps young people become self-made in a particular kind of way. Hip hop also was a conduit for everyday kids. I went to high school with kids who became producers and choreographers and, you know, went on to do things in the genre and different, not just the MCs, right? I think that's the other thing we don't appreciate about that the golden era of hip-hop, it was a time to become self-made. And so that's why we have the Genesees. I remember Diddy throwing parties down in the hotels in in 34th Street, you know, when he was, when he was And he used to throw parties and everybody wanted Uh. to get in his parties. And he would like rent out a hotel, you know, the banquet part of a hotel and throw these big parties, Tupac walking through, Biggie walking through. It was a big deal, but we're so removed from the artists and the culture now that we don't have that kind of access. So before social media, that era of hip hop gave us access to like, we could at least see them or you knew them, your your cousin, uncle, so-and-so was, you know, connected to it. And I I just appreciate the level of creativity and openness and, and access hip hop gave us to make us think, Oh, I could do that. Like you saw so-and-so do it so I can do it, you know?
1: Yeah, you know, I was not influenced by gospel music. I was influenced by hip hop. My, <laughs> my name was Kid Fresh. My name was Kid Fresh. Oh, you man. know, and I used to break dance, and I would go to the skating rink. There was a skating yeah. rink on Saturday nights called Jolly Time and I would get up there and I'd spit, yeah. you know, and so Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. I'm oh, a, Texas. like, I said, I'm from the South, yeah. but I was so like, I remember when the movie Breaking came mm-hmm. out, I saw it about 10 times. I remember when Beat Street came yeah. out, saw it about 10 times. I remember Crush Groove came out. We were enamored by what was happening in New York City yeah. with hip hop, because everything about it spoke to the rebellion and the voice of the voiceless, mm-hmm. especially those of us in marginalized communities. Absolutely. And so did a little Tirana ever have a fresh eight or fresh 16 oh, bars absolutely. that she would ever have on deck? Yo, man?
0: let me tell you, I used to think I was gonna be, I was lady T, I I was sweet tea, I tried to do the, you know, tried to write my little beat, but I was always biting other people's rhymes. <laughs> You know, give me some, give me some. Oh come on, don't do this to me. You gonna make me freestyle somebody else's? Come on, lady T. Here comes the rugged one, bust the weight not flip it. <laughs> no, <I can't. laughs> I was about to do a
1: whole Pete a whole Pete Rock verse. Hold on, hold on, hold on. But just for your boy, just for your new brother that you just met. (laughs) Everybody knows the serious side of your life, which has transformed many people. But give them a little bit of that. People know I'm so hip hop. Can you just finish a little bit of that? Wait, wait, let me remember it first. Hold on, let me see.
0: It's a Pete Rock verse. Oh. here comes the rugged one, bust away, I flip it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, I can't remember it. Wait a minute. this to be my favorite verse.
1: <laughs> but, but ladies and gentlemen, yeah.
0: you can hear that East Coast <laughs> on her voice though.
1: Did you hear that East Coast on her voice? She's "Yeah, you can, you can not I want, or any Jay-Z verse. We like, will take that. God bless your heart. But, but, but Lady T, can we just finish this part also by mm-hmm. saying, aren't you blown away that at 52, he still got incredible. it. Incredible.
0: That 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 new verse on God did, that oh my gosh. I am I am it is incredible.
1: Oh my gosh. Incredible. Oh my gosh. Incredible. And you gotta keep rewinding That's it because there's right. so many That's gems.
0: Right. I thought, I rew- Listen, I played that verse so many times, and I was like, he's just so like you can't just undisputable greatest of all time. Just, just, just the way, just way man, listen. Let
1: me tell you something, man. This this is beautiful for people to get to see this side of you that you you care about life and and you care about people in life and you care about the totality of our species. And I think that it was really dope that we had a chance to open up just with this, this human space where we found um, this uniformity and our love for music and our love for the culture that we both live and die for. And I celebrate how you have also tapped into a space in the culture that, that for many years was marginalized. It was suppressed. Mm-hmm. And It's been almost five years since most people became aware of the Me Too movement as a cultural phenomenon. And there are still so many misconceptions of what uh, it's really about. Oh, absolutely. One
0: hundred percent. One hundred percent.
1: So then share with people just as a refresher course. What is the Me Too movement?
0: You know, I think the the part that people miss and why there's so many misconceptions is that fundamentally people miss that this is a movement about healing and action. Right. If you took off Me Too or if it was like a movie or a book that had a subtitle, it would be the Me Too movement, a movement for survivor justice. And I think that's the part that gets that gets dropped and taken off. Like when you did the introduction and you talked about 12 million people who responded to the hashtag in 24 hours. You know, we have a campaign now called Beyond the Hashtag because I think people got stuck right there. And they like, oh, yeah, many yeah. people. Oh, look, a lot of people. And because our culture is so designed right now to sort of lean towards anything that is glitzy and glamorous, celebrity driven, you know, um, character driven, driven by people who have, you know, status and whatnot and influence. Instead of thinking about those 12 million hashtags as human beings, we skipped over them. Like, we're not here because I made up a phrase. We're not here because of Harvey Weinstein. We're here because people got brave enough when they saw a community that was safe enough to come forward and say, this thing happened to me too. Those are individual people that we know. Those are your coworkers and your aunties and your grandmother and your uncles and your cousin. These are real people whose lives have been impacted, who saw an opportunity to, to like, pull this thing that they've been holding in the pit of their stomach sometimes for decades and say, you know what, this happened to me too. And it became a cultural phenomenon because we have not seen that level of safety to tell that kind of truth before. Not because of celebrities, not because of scandal, but because I I think there's never an opportunity to sit back and look at that moment in a different light. The internet is not a safe place for a lot of people. Right. It's not a it's not a place for intimacy. It's not a place for truth and and soul bearing. But we saw a moment where people felt safe enough. to to go into that that Pandora's box that we tucked away and say, this is a thing that I've been dying to get out. I've been dying to have somebody to talk to somebody to see me and to and to hear me and to understand what this has done to me. And if I see these people, they're brave enough. I just want to join them. And suddenly what happened is yes. the media said, oh, well, who's going to get Me too next? And who's the next person that Me Too was going to take down? And I'm like, did Me Too take this person down? Or did people have an opportunity to tell their truth? And when people realized the truth, they were like, Dad, this is unjust. And there should be some yes. accountability for yes. it, right? So I think it just lost a lot of nuance and humanity in the last five years because folks are afraid. It really is about fear in a lot of ways. People don't want to face their own mistakes, the possibility of their own mistakes. We as a country, all of us are so socialized to think about everything in a crime and punishment framework that even when Me Too went viral, there were lots of loud voices that were only like, they got to go, take them down, kill them, destroy them, blah, 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 blah. And that came out of A lack of understanding of the various ways that accountability can look, right? A lack of a model for what it looks like to hold somebody accountable for harm, as opposed to saying, you got to go to jail, or you got to lose your job, or you got to, some people need to be outside the community because they just ain't going to get right, right? (laughs) There's some people who are serial predators, you know, who are egregious in the harm they cause, and we can't. Just ask for accountability in in the same ways that I'm going to say, oh boy, said some sexist thing to me or, you know, touched me in a way that made me uncomfortable. Those two things are not the same. But I think a lot of things got looked at that way. Go ahead. I'm you got to stop
1: me because I'll keep talking. <laughs> no, 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 no. is beautiful. But you said something so profound. I would love for you to just elaborate on a little bit more if you don't mind. What should accountability then look like?
0: And this is the question that always comes up and was never discussed in this answer is that there's no one size fits all for accountability. Sexual violence happens on a spectrum, right? From harassment, violent words and actions to sexual harassment, all the way to death, to femicide, to people who are murdered in the process or rape, that's a big, wide spectrum. All of it is sexual violence. But because that spectrum is so big, accountability also has to happen on the spectrum. So for me to say, I can't say, well, accountability should look like blah, 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 because it is about the people involved. The first person who should define accountability is the person who was harmed. And I'm going to tell you how I always help yeah. people understand is who are who haven't experienced it. If I walked up to you and I punched you in your face and me and you are cool, we ain't got no beef. I just was feeling real froggy and whatever. And I punched you in your face. And then I say, man, Kirk, you all right. Let me see your face. You good. You know, dust it off. We good. Yeah. Are me and you going to just yeah. be friends? Yeah. We just going to kick it? I'm coming to the house. We
1: never. No, no, sir.
0: Something has to happen. No, sir. To deal with yes, the sir. harm that I caused, even if you cool, even if I didn't injure you, even if you get over the injury, yes. I have caused yes. you harm. In a general way, we understand that people have to be accountable for harm for everything else. I think part of it also is because people don't understand the gravity of what sexual violence does to a person. So, again, another analogy I try to use is that if you take away the word murder and put in rape sometimes for things, you would hear like, I used this example of there was a conversation about a, a person who had you know had a reputation for taking advantage of women like putting drugs in their drinks and then sexually assaulting them and the conversation was something like oh you know they say that he might have you know assaulted like three or four women i don't know i mean you know that's not enough to do such and such and such if i said to you yeah you know, I heard old boy might have murdered a couple of people. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's powerful. You know, they said that he murdered a couple of people. He took, you know, he killed so-and-so and so-and-so. But I'm not sure. But I'm still going to mess with him. Yeah. But yeah, so- <laughs> Because yeah. if yeah. you understand yeah. that violence as a type of death, then I think mm-hmm. people can give it the gravity that it
1: deserves. Right? So let me ask you, this genius that, you created, because I think that the smallest statements have the most sometimes cultural impact. Mm-hmm. but what was the ideation? Yeah of just using the two words "me too?" part
0: of it was I was working with young girls in Alabama, and I'm talking middle school girls, you know, this is somewhere between sixth and eighth grade. And I was quite frankly, afraid of my own story. Right. The reason why I wanted to do the work was because I understood what they were dealing with as survivors, because I was a survivor at that age. But I didn't want to deal with what it had done to me. It was just inside. There was a missing piece in how I connected with the girls, because it's like the difference between sympathy and empathy. When I sympathize with you, there's inherently a barrier between us. Right. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. You know, I'm cool, but I'm sorry that happened to you. And you may mean well, but the person on the other end of that feels that, that distance. And that distance was not allowing me to really connect with the young people. I had to put myself and be clear about why I empathize, why I deeply understand and connect with what they've been through and have an understanding of what they need. Because it happened to me, too. And that's like, you know, a short version of the impetus of using the language. But those words, if you read in my book came to me, honestly, after a very spiritual experience. That was me fighting, 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 fighting to not do this. I didn't want to do this work. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to unleash my demons. I didn't want to have to go back and deal with all of this childhood trauma and adult trauma. That I have quite frankly tucked away. I just wanted to get out and help the kids, you know. Yeah, I wasn't trying yeah, to do work on sexual violence. I was trying to do leadership development with these girls. I thought I'd overcome all of these things that happened to me in my youth because I had been poured into by people who said, You are a leader, you have a voice, and you should use your voice. And that was part of my healing, right? It was a part that helped me keep moving and not think about those things. But I didn't understand because I was also young that those things don't go away. Right. They can lie dormant and they're not even dormant. They just get silent in your brain. But it's like they're still permeating all through your body. It was in everything I did, all the ways that I showed up in the world, in my deep insecurities. And the truth of the matter is what God said to me was you can't do this work You are not going to do this work well. You are not going to have any breakthrough that you want to have with these young people or with anything else until you get yourself in it.
1: Wow. Just even speaking of young girls and what you do with them. You know, when we were growing up, a lot of parents who wanted to teach their children to avoid sexual assault and, you know, they they had their own tools of how to be able to survive and just maneuver through these difficult challenges as they came up in our homes and our communities. And they would say things like, don't let anybody touch you mm-hmm. or don't sit on anybody's mm-hmm. lap. And some parents just assume that children would know to just come and tell them if something happened. But what messages did you receive as a child about sexual assault?
0: I received the same messages that so many of us receive, particularly in the Black community and other communities of color, were just like that. You don't sit on no grown man's lap. You don't let nobody touch your private parts. Like you got the rundown of the rules, but nobody said if one of those rules are broken, it's not your fault. That it is always the adults. Oh, Wow, rule. that's good. Right? These are rules that's that good. I'm giving you for your safety. But ultimately, as a child, what do we know? The people to keep us safe are the big people, right? The people who are charged with yeah. making our lives move forward and keep us safe are the adults around yeah. us. So you give me rules that sound like the same rules as look both ways as you cross the street, you know? Then it puts the onus on the child. So when I Mm -hmm. experienced sexual violence at seven, I thought I was complicit. I felt guilty and I felt shame. I didn't feel um, like somebody had done something to me. I felt like we had done something bad. And that made me want to, to close up. and made me want to hide and something so bad that I can't even because, you know, little kids will admit to finally, if you if their back is against the wall, a child will say, "Okay, I broke the thing or I spilled the thing or I, you know, did whatever the thing is. But this kind of harm builds a type of shame that even at seven years old, you know, I can't tell anybody because it literally will change who I am to these people. Right, like yeah, we yeah. tell children you got to be a good girl, a good boy, you got to be a good child, and it's so arbitrary. Who determines mm-hmm. goodness and badness? And you know, there's a whole other layer of that when you grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up Catholic, though. But you're right. Yeah,
1: but but you are yeah. right. There's another there's layer. There's
0: a whole other layer. Yeah, but I grew up. I should say I didn't grow up in. I'm Baptist now, but I grew up in a Catholic church. So I also then had this idea about disappointing God, about being dirty and evil and bad. And so I then tried to lean on Mm. all of the little things that, you know, the Catholic church will give you a million ways to get out of sin. (laughs) Like you just, Mm -hmm. you can do all the things. And so, you know, it just creates a um, dynamic and it created a dynamic for me that was really, really toxic and dangerous.
1: With that, we're going to take a quick break. And let's get back into it. So help me understand um, something even in this space we're talking. So letting kids know that it's not their fault, Mm -hmm. right? What else can we say to children to affirm them on this subject? Because the more we become also a sexualized society, Mm -hmm. we are going to see more of the lines being blurred. That just because a young lady may choose to... Entertain herself in a music video, dress a certain way. These are not subliminal messages for your engagement in her private space. And so, as the culture changes, and there's this freedom and liberation that a younger generation of women may see and experience. I mean, you've seen it, I've seen it. We've got now ten year old little girls, eight year old little girls, seven year old girls that are dancing like their favorite pop star on TikTok, and. The dances are different. The movements are different than 7 year old little girls, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I think that these unapologetic gully, 100, take it a hundred conversations about sexuality, protection, rape, um, respecting lines and borders and creating and establishing what those lines and borders are for men and women, for boys and girls. What can we say to children to just to even affirm them on this subject? Well,
0: first we should be re-socializing or socializing our children around bodily autonomy and respect and consent very early, very, very early. So one of the Mm -hmm. ways we can affirm children Mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, consent is a perfect example And you might have seen some of this on the Internet, but I've been doing this since my my child, who's now 25, was young. Things like forcing children into uncomfortable situations, forcing them to hug family members, forcing them to kiss people, saying things like, that's your little boyfriend or that person hits you because he likes you. You know, all these little messages that we give are not affirming, particularly the little girls, but certainly the little boys as well or children who are trying to figure out where they fall on that spectrum. These things are not affirming to them at all. We need to be saying to our young people, what's more affirming is to say, you have a choice with whom you want to share intimate space. You have a choice. People have to have consent before they touch you, even if they are a loved one. Even if there's somebody who is in your family, right? Y'all know sometimes Auntie so-and-so under arms be stinking and she don't want to hug. Little kids know it. <laughs> <laughs> so so breath stinking, I don't want to kiss them. Don't make your kids yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: you know? Don't make them kiss Nana if Nana's mustache <laughs> it's gonna, is thicker.
0: Please go scratch you up. <laughs> but I mean that uh, but but those little yeah. things matter because it teaches young people early that they have choice. And so when a stranger comes and tries to manipulate them or starts to try to groom them, which is something that we also don't have enough conversation about in our in our community. Then they have a sensibility that says, I have choices. When I was touched first as a child, I did not think I had a choice because the person was older than me. This is an adult, right? I'm supposed to do what adults say. So we have to shift the way we talk to young people. You know, what really used to drive me mad was the, you know, every year during prom season, you have all these videos of fathers with their guns threatening the young men who come to pick up their daughter to take them out to prom. And you have all these messages about, you know, you mess with my daughter and I'm going to kill you and all of that. We also need to rethink those messages because here's the truth about what happened to me. Part of the reason why I was scared to come forward was not just the shame that I felt and the guilt that I felt, but I also knew that if I told my father that somebody had harmed me. I, at seven years old, I knew what a pistol was. I knew where he kept it in the house. I knew what violence was in my community. And I also knew what consequences were. And we underestimate what children pick up and know. If you are a Black child in the inner city or any really part of America, you understand what it means to have police interaction in your family. We know what that yeah. is very early. And in yes. 1979, yes. I knew what that was. 1980, I knew what that was. And I know Police, yeah. guns, and bad people bring police. Police take people away from your family and you don't see them again. So in terms of how we affirm children, we have to be very careful. I, I did it to my daughter. My daughter would not tell me things. And then would tell me and say, mommy, please don't come up here and act a fool. Please don't come up here and, you know, because everybody know. I'm like one frog here on this child's head <laughs> gets damaged and it's everybody yeah. got to go. You know, but I had to
1: change that. And way. see, that's my love for black mamas. I'm sorry, but listen, yeah. I am a fan of the black mama. <laughs> As I love the black mama, they would come up to the school and the house coat and the zipper didn't work all the way and she'd hold the top that's of right. it. You know what I'm saying? She might have a cigarette yeah. hanging out from her right here. <laughs> cigarette hanging hand. Hold on. And let me tell you about the lady that adopted me because I was adopted by an older lady. Oh. She'd show up to the school and she'd have. Now, mind you, she's she's probably 72 years old, got a jet black wig. (laughs) You remember that? Them wigs be jet black. Hold on. But but it wouldn't cover.
0: That little gray stick out.
1: (laughs) It wouldn't cover the neck. It wouldn't cover that gray neck. (laughs) And so, so, baby. Baby, celebrate! Celebrate to the black mama that come up to the school yeah. and put it on but you. I'm gonna tell you. I what, love it. I'm gonna
0: come up to the school to to make sure my child is doing right. But I'm also gonna come to the school if my child comes to me and says something is wrong. So I was the black mama that I went both ways. So I'm gonna I'm gonna address it all. The balance between being mama bear and between having the child so fearful, right, that they're gonna trigger that part of you that they don't want to tell you anything because they don't want any trouble. Right. Children don't want trouble.
1: How do you balance that? How do you balance it? And how can we balance to let our kids know that we are going to protect them, that, mm-hmm. that, that we will put hands if it's time to put hands on anybody with our babies, but without also threatening violence, how do we let them know that balance that we got you, Yeah, but not always in the context of violence. Well, when we have to show it,
0: <laughs> right. It takes more than just saying that, like, I had to literally stop being (laughs) rah-rah in a particular kind of way so that my daughter would know I can handle things in conversation with a letter, with a very strongly worded letter. You know, like, I'm not, and you have to stop saying things like, I'm coming through there and I'm taking everybody. We have to show (laughs) the children that's true because a lot of the bravado Mm. of, I'm going to get him, I'm going to do that. It's about the adult, right? It's about the adult feeling Mm. like I have to do my job at all costs. But the biggest part of our job is caring for our child and making our child feel safe, making the children we're responsible feel safe. And I think that's what we have to do. There's no one size fits all, but we have to prioritize our children's mental and physical safety at all times. And I'm just going to say this, that includes the things we say around them. Right. Not just yes. the, the things we say to them. Yes. But. When your child is sitting back, listening to you defend these people on television, talk about these young girls and, oh, what them them, them girls, they shouldn't have been out there. And these old girls, all of that is going into their psyche and it's adding up to, I can't be safe here. If something happens to me, this is not a safe place for me to come forward and say Mm
1: -hmm. that. Wow, that's powerful. Listen, I want to ask you this. Uh, and and I find this even in my own life as a Christian, that sometimes you can be so busy having heavy, weighty conversations, you don't realize that you need a break. It's almost like a a doctor or a person that works at a funeral home. They are dealing with death so much, of trauma so much that how do you go home and take it all. make love to your right. wife? How do you go home and just cook some biscuits right. and, you know, right. um. Uh, for you and your career has been being a voice for a subject matter that in no way has any levity to it. It's a very weighty uh, topic of discussion. How does Tarana handle her own mental health and her own balance of joy and laughter and, and time out and taking an exit? From this cross that you carry for so many, so that you can have a balance of health and happiness.
0: I will say this: that the topic doesn't have any levity at all, but my life definitely does. Like I'm, I'm glad we started off talking about hip hop and culture the way we did as well, because I think people are always ready. You know, like my girlfriend always says this: they just want you to walk around dragging your knuckles all the time. <laughs> and yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Part yeah. Of what
0: I also Think is important to be as a public survivor is an example of what survival looks like and so I have to prioritize my joy I have to prioritize the spaces that I occupy it's as, as places where I can really relax and you know my husband is I met my husband when I was 16 years old we didn't get married it was a long long story but the bottom line is he's a regular dude from my neighborhood right this is not his world he's not an activist he's not a He was a a barber and a taxi driver. And you know what I'm saying? He's just a regular dude. And
1: That's dope. That's dope. Yeah.
0: And when he came back into my life, it was really, really important to have somebody who grounds me in that kind of way, right? He don't care about person of the year, Mad Time magazines and all of this. That's not his concern. Same thing with my girlfriends. I have my best friend I've been friends with since 14 is my right hand. You know, my homegirls, there's nobody in my circle I've known less than 10 years. So part of my mental health is making sure I'm around people who see me as a human being. These are not transactional relationships, right? They are loving, caring, grounding relationships. And then my child, you know, all of it, family, it's just, that's what helps me stay afloat. Um, It's not always successful (laughs) because This work is hard and the work is hard enough. But then being a public figure who a regular person who became a public figure, um, it's hard to make that shift of like, oh, well, you know, people are going to talk crazy about you. They're going to talk crazy to you. You know, people are going to make up things about you. There's a whole side to this that is nothing that I asked for, but I take it all as a part of the assignment that I was given and the responsibility I have. So. My life has worked out so that I have enough balance of both so that I, you know, when it gets a little too much, I can go back.
1: Good, good, good. Now I heard you say something earlier and I just want to make sure that I had a chance to hear you right. you, you, um, you know a little bit about my music. You listen to a little bit of gospel music. You go to church.
0: (laughs) So I went to school in Alabama. Let me just say this first. Really? Where'd you go? I went go? to Alabama State and Auburn University. So, Ooh, yeah, that's dope. And I was in school in your know, the dawn of Kirk Franklin, the early days, the silver and gold when they <laughs> was driving us crazy with silver and gold. That was the S girl, oh, Kirk Franklin. Lord, every single choir wanted to sing that song, and I wasn't quite. I hadn't quite made that transition yet. But certainly, your music has literally carried me out of some really, really, really dark places. So I am, you know, I was telling the producer when we came on, my mother don't care about nothing I do and has been like, not don't care, but you know, she's like, we can go talk to Kirk Franklin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like that, I love That it. Fight of My Life album and, and literally on my alarm, every morning would be, every. that's what got me. That was a dark period that had to be like,
1: Wow. That had to be like wow. 2007. Yes. Yes. That was 07. Yeah. Man. man, man, man. Listen, I am so glad of just the nuances that you and I can flow in and yeah. out of, You know what I mean? We're, we're talking about just the beautiful tapestry of life. It right? Is. You know, and as a man, like like most men of our era right now, we wanna become allies. We wanna become the shoulders that you guys can lean on. And we wanna be able to become the hands that that even push you higher mm-hmm. as as our sisters. And there's so much shame associated with sexual violence. And you had to overcome a lot of shame to be able to share your story. I have a question for you. What, what, what can the brothers do to help the cause in tangible ways and not just with t-shirts <laughs> And not just with hashtags, but like, but what can the bros do? And again, you know, know that there's a dichotomy to what I'm saying is because, you know, sometimes our music, sometimes mm-hmm. our coaches, sometimes our conversations do not always create an honorable space mm-hmm. as far as commentary yeah. that sometimes reflects anything that I just said. Mm-hmm. It can at times be. At Oxymoron, that we say that we celebrate the Black Queens, but then there may be some piece of art that is heard on the radio or that's put out that that is counterintuitive to that statement. At the same time, we understand that the freedom of expression is given to men and women, Mm -hmm. and they both can share in that story and telling their own stories. So, from your perspective, being boots on the ground as long as you've been, what can the brothers do? to help the sisters in tangible ways in this. Well, let me, I'm
0: going to take this question in, in a couple of pieces. I think the first thing is- Yes,
1: please do, but I gave you a whole <laughs> yeah, bunch? I yeah. know I gave you a whole bunch, I'm no, sorry. No, no, it's
0: fine, it's fine. I think the first part is that when we frame the question in that way, it's it automatically sets it up as sort of, this is a woman's issue and the men are just allies. So I think the, the very first thing that brothers can do is acknowledge other brothers. Right. I think before we get into, you know, men as allies for women, I would say men's first role in this movement is as survivors. And so if men would acknowledge that sexual violence doesn't just happen to women, that there are so many boys who are who grow to men who are adult survivors of sexual abuse, that there are men. There's so much sexual violence that happens, for instance, to men who have been formerly incarcerated or who are currently incarcerated. There's so much sexual harassment, sexual abuse that happens along racial lines. like So there's there are lots of ways that I think men need to first look at this issue as a universal social justice issue, because if you just tag it as a women's issue, it, it allows people an out. You know, it allows people space to sort of um, bastardize it in a way that they shouldn't, because this is an issue that affects Everybody, every community, if you aren't a survivor, you know one, I guarantee you. So that's number one. But the truth of the matter is women largely are the survivors of sexual violence, Uh, you know, and statistically. And I think really that's because of men don't have the space to come forward, but that's a whole nother story. But women come forward the most, talk about it the most. And so it would also be helpful if brothers could really try to start understanding what it is to experience this, whether you have or not. And, and this is actually for all people. This is why we, we emphasize empathy so much in our work. This is not just about brothers, because quite frankly, when women experience sexual violence, the first person we usually encounter is another woman Who has been socialized to ask the kind of questions that shame and demean you, like, well, why were you there? And what were you wearing? And why would that brother do that to you? Right. Those questions come a lot of times from women. So it really would help anybody who wants to be an ally to this work and to this movement to understand the breadth and depth of what sexual violence does to your body. It's just it's trauma, right? It is internalized trauma that seeps through every part of your pores. This is the the kind of trauma that causes drug abuse. This is the kind of trauma that causes mental health issues. This is the kind of trauma that leads to all kind of other long-term issues, right? It's really a public health issue. So that's the second thing. I think we need to reframe how we think about sexual violence. And then the third thing is, again, not just brother-specific. This is about dismantling rape culture. And that goes to what you were talking about in terms of the music and the conversation and the, the the things that we have normalized. You said something earlier about this. We've normalized an entitlement to a woman's body, right? Based on yes. what she's wearing, what conversations y'all had, these yes. expectations that have been laid out because patriarchy is the dominant lens that we use to look at relationships, to look at in intimate interactions. And so, That's something all of us do. Patriarchy has us all by the throat, right? Because this is how we've been socialized, down to gender norms and all the rest of that kind of stuff. This idea, sexual violence, but in particular in the Black community, is, is not complicated, but complex. Because there is the racialized history of sexual violence being weaponized against Black men, right? Literally used as a racist weapon to take the lives of Black men. We've seen it over and over again from Emmett Till to Central Park Five. We've seen the, even though Central Park wasn't a false accusation, but it was a a public lynching in ways in terms of how those, those boys were, um, the way they went after them. And so we yes. have seen sexual violence be used as a weapon against Black men in ways that has embedded into our psyche along with all the other racist, horrible, traumatic things that we've seen in this country. So it becomes difficult for us to separate, right? These ideas. So the other thing brothers can do is to take a honest look at the reality of sexual violence, not just through a historical lens, right? We love to pull out Emmett Till and all these other things, When it, yeah. But, but, yeah. but brother R. Kelly is not Emmett Till. You know what I'm saying? And we yes. have to have discernment and actually just common sense in some ways. Forget about the celebrities. Yes. Forget about the names that you love for a second, for just a second, put that on the shelf. You can go right in your neighborhood. You know the jokes about Chester the molester, the the jokes about the the deacon, you know, who who people have been worshiping about. We know these things as real, tangible, serious things. If we don't understand that that is the reality that so many young girls and boys, children are facing, And that teenagers are children, right? That's a time in your life when you may be experimenting with your sexuality, which meaning like kids want to, you know, be sexy or have sex or whatever. That's the time when that's supposed to happen. And then people come in and manipulate those situations. And we put the onus on the child. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be helpful if brothers would just not feel like it's an attack against them personally. When women, particularly Black women, speak up about our experiences. Like, if Black lives actually matter, then we have to look at the quality of those Black lives, not just the ones that are dead or alive, right? It's like, we yes, don't want you to yes. be dead, but how are you living once you are alive? And Black women, I don't want to get too deep in my bag about this, but also, not only do Black women have the second highest rate of sexual violence in this country. We have layers of it because we experience it intercommunally, right? Meaning at the hands of other Black people. But we also, Black people have the highest rates of experiences with police violence. Not just Black men, Black people. And because of the way we have, what we have seen in, you know, over the last 10 years with Black Lives Matter, Black women have had to force ourselves into that conversation, right? Say her name. Because Black women also die at the hands of police. Less than Black Mm -hmm. men do. But you know what happens more? Mm -hmm. Black women are sexually assaulted by police. So we're not Mm -hmm. only brutalized Mm -hmm. by police, murdered by police, we are also sexually assaulted by police.
1: Yes. So there's a reality
0: of what Black women are experiencing in this country that we just want to voice. We want to have a conversation about. And what happens is when we raise this conversation, we are met with, what about, what about, da-da-da, da-da-da. What about the lies? What about this? What about that? As opposed to, whoa, those are big numbers. Those are big numbers. Big numbers. It, right? If you look at every big major numbers. social justice movement in this country in the last decade, they have been led by Black women. Founded, start with, and led by oh, Black li-
1: women. Right? Listen, histo- historically. You have carried this country on your shoulders.
0: And at the that's right. <laughs> yeah. At the very least, yeah, at the yeah, yeah. very least, when yeah. we say this hurts, I would love for the response to be, where does it hurt?
1: Where does yes. it hurt? Yes. Right? Yes. Not get over And band it, you know, and, on and,
0: it. <laughs>
1: Amen. Yeah. Amen. Man, listen, I am enjoying this lesson as a black man and as an ally and as your brother. Um if you don't mind, <laughs> is I know you're busy and I know you're chilling. And you know, I'm just very honored to have you here. And I want your mama to enjoy yeah. this podcast too. So I gotta get a little bit more just for your moms, right? And your work is founder of the Me Too movement, which has been incredible, Tarana. And I know she's proud of you, you know, is I know she's proud of the work that you've been doing. Like you are the founder of this global movement, Me Too. You've aimed to change the way the world thinks about sexual assault, mm-hmm. abuse, and exploitation. How do we get people to see how important or serious it is? This work that we're doing, we have to keep talking about it. We have to not shy away
0: from this issue. We have to not reduce it to men versus women and, you know, cancel culture and all of this stuff that we're doing. It's so dangerous the way we are talking about Me Too and this issue now in this sort of politicized popular culture way and connecting it to celebrities and all the rest. It's not about that and the, and it's dangerous yeah, when we yeah, do that yeah. because it takes away from every 67 seconds in this country there's another act of sexual violence committed
1: Ooh. right don't you hate don't you hate when when a pure moment gets that foot of celebrityism mm-hmm. into it and then it becomes part of the 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 the, the the pop culture tapestry mm-hmm. and the ecosystem of what's hot and what's trending. It's, it's like, it can it's be exhausting. so daunting. Yeah. 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 But I do want you to know is I think that you maneuver well is I think that you have handled this with grace. Um, you make us proud. Oh. You're standing on the front line. You're keeping watch. And I know that there are lives. There are lives that it will echo in eternity. What you have done. Brother, I hope for so. For so many beautiful <laughs> black and brown women of color. Love it. Last question. You a New York girl. You about to turn 50 when hip hop turns 50. When, when is this? Next year, yeah, right?
0: September
1: 73 for me. August 73 for hip hop. <laughs> Give me your top five. Ooh. Who are your top five MCs? Okay. Give me your top five. Uh, all right, all right, all right, all right. This just shifts some time. So I'm going to start from five and work my way up. Oh wait a minute! Wait a minute! <laughs> Is I wouldn't expect anything else if you went from one to five. You're not a real one. exactly
0: exactly.
1: Is I wouldn't even have this conversation with you. You're not <laughs> even a real one if you go from one to five. <laughs> All right,
0: Rakim.
1: Nah, it's number five. Okay, sort of five. Hold up! Hold up! Hold up! Wait! Hold up! Hold up! Hold okay. Hold until, on. Let me just, let me put a caveat until we
0: get to number one. <laughs> In no particular order until we get to number
1: one. Ah! Okay, 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 okay. Okay, so start over. Okay, start, start over. over. All right. <laughs> you just said Grace. You were talking Grace, about Grace, Grace a minute Grace. ago, so now Grace I got to give Grace. you Grace. Yeah, because you said Rakim. I'm like, what? I know, I did my mind. I was what? like, I'm
0: not putting him in number five. That's crazy. But,
1: so it's no particular order. Okay, but go. Rakim. Go. until we get to number one.
0: Rakim, Nas, Lauren, This is always hard because number one stays number one. This one right here is so hard because I want to say Tariq, Black Thought. I'm going to just go with Tariq, Black Thought. It's just not really, it's not really too many people that's going to test him. So what did I say? Rakim, Nas, Lauren, Tariq, and Jay. Jay, all day, hands down.
1: And she's from the Bronx, so... It's it's and it's very it difficult is. to counter. It is what she said, but
0: and not to have a Bronx person on there she, is is you know it's almost it's blasphemy. I it's know. blasphemy. I know. I'm gonna tell it's you, blasphemy, tell woman. You, let me just say this: this is probably controversial for me to say. I love Karis one. You know, I get the jokes all the time. People tell me I look like Karis one, and he don't know his daddy. I don't know my daddy, so we might be brother and sister. <laughs> 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 but I used to I have Chris it. on my list. And then, and then I had to, he had to slide down the list. He was in my top five, but I had to, I had to put him down. List. Yes,
1: I just want to be able to say it just for the conversation, ladies and gentlemen, I, I am aware that there was no Biggie on her nah, list.
0: not in top five. I, he would be
1: the only six.
0: I know. Biggie slid down <sighs> too. Let me say this. So some of this is political. I have to say, KRS and Biggie are political choices. That we don't we don't have to get into, but I had to come to the realization that some of the stuff that I was letting go, letting slide. Like you said, let me just let's just let's just take a minute to talk about this, right? As a woman who loves hip hop, it's really hard for us. And there comes a time when you Mm. have to like, I think, at least for me, I had to make some choices that were really more political. I am guilty of singing every filthy lyric, every misogynist lyric. You know, I, I would be a lie to say I didn't. Right, I have got on the dance floor and done all the things. Biggie has yeah. some lyrics in his music, and I'm sure somebody would probably call me. I'll be like, "What about when Jay said this?" And what about I'm, I? I might have missed it. I don't know. But the, there's two lyrics that I could not in um, "Dreams" when he talks about um, Raven Simone and date rape. I, can't, I had to. I had to. You know, it just. And then there's another lyric where he says, "I like him young, fresh, and green with no hair in between." Know what I mean? And I'm like, "He sure did. He say did say that." Sure you know what I'm saying? So I'm gonna tell you, yeah. Brother Kirk, my list has changed. My list has changed over the years. Wow, Biggie.
1: That's Deep Water. Was my
0: was my was my who? And Karis one like that's.
1: Did that happen for you as well with Pac? You know,
0: this might be blasphemous. I wasn't really a big Pac fan like that. I was. He died the day yeah. We're we gonna have to end. Okay.
1: We we gonna we gonna have to end this conversation. Okay. I
0: respect we, and love Tupac. I do. Um. And I think he was a genius. And people don't notice that Tupac lived in the Bronx too, in the building next to me when he was a kid. But that's another story.
1: Really? Yeah.
0: Tupac lived in the Bronx for a period. Didn't of Did not know life. that. Um.
1: Did not know but, that.
0: But I was really impacted by that East Coast West Coast all of that nonsense. And his music got so West Coast. Now, there's some classics that I love, 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 but he's not on my list. But I'm going to say this, Karis one, too. When he came out back in Africa, BamBada, saying the things that he was accused of um, were not as important as who he is to to hip hop. I was like, I was so disappointed. And like, these Mm -hmm. are things I'm talking about in terms of how we shift the culture. It's difficult to be a black woman who loves hip hop. It's difficult. Yeah. So that's why my top five
1: is about political, and I couldn't agree with you anymore. I I, I couldn't agree with you anymore, and you know that is the complexity Mm -hmm. of our community. That 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 is the unique duplicity that sometimes we exist in with black and brown people. But I celebrate you. You I am such a fan. I I mean, you've been super dope today. What you working on next?
0: Well, I'm definitely working on that book. Revolutionary Grace is my next book. But beyond that, we're working on a fifth anniversary,
1: the anniversary of the
0: hashtag, because the hashtag propelled, you know, this work into the global spotlight. And so we want to use this as a moment to really bring people's attention to the ways that they can be disruptors in, in rape culture. But also Me Too had a big, big moment. And then it started changing and people started trying to co-opt it in different kind of ways. If we don't stay laser focused on the real issue, we will lose an opportunity to really shift culture. And so that's what we're trying to do with the fifth anniversary. We're trying to really hit the ground and help people understand what this movement is, that it is a movement, that we're still here, that we're alive. It's not about taking down people. It's not about, you know, going after people. It is about healing and action. We are a survivor justice movement, yes. right? This is about survivor justice. Yes. Me Too Movement is an organization as well, Me Too International. Our website is a beautiful space for survivors to go when they need healing resources, when they're looking for community. So I encourage people all the time, you know, we're, we're continuing to build that up. And, you know, I'm living, I'm writing and living and trying to, trying to be the best human being that I can. <laughs>
1: Honestly. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been an honor to talk to Tarana Burke, a 48 year old MC, <laughs> a mama, a wife, a voice and oracle, a preacher, a rhyme spitter, <laughs> a great friend, a trailblazer. And if you Do not recognize the name. I'm quite sure that you can show up at her house and look in her closet, and I guarantee you there is an airbrushed t shirt somewhere in the back of that closet, and I guarantee you that it will say Lady T. Ah, It was a hat. (laughs) hat. Thank you so much, yo. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Show some love for Toronto Burke, yo. Thank thank you. you. So thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words, man. I hope you are enjoying yourself. I hope you're enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy. And if you are, please do me a favor. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Can you do that for me? I'd appreciate it. And don't you forget, you can never go too far or you can't come back home. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music Entertainment, R.C. Inspiration, and something else. Produced by Janicia Francis with senior producer Danielle Jones-Wesley. Associate producers are Danya Hamid, Rachel Chodar, and Kyra Asabe Bansu. It's executive produced by Ron Hill, Reese Brooks, Sarita Wesley, Tom Koenig, Hybrid Agency, and myself, your boy, Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff and special thanks to Charlie, and Steve Ackerman.